right, are you ready to see Christ to the preaching of His Word? All right, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7 again. In fact, your Bible should pretty much just fall open to 2 Samuel 7 at this point. Um, but this will be the next to last time we'll be in, in this particular chapter. Uh, we're just going to start David's response to the covenant. Uh, we're going to start um, with verses 18 through 21 this morning. That should get us uh, enough to dwell on, to chew on throughout the rest of the week. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, verses 18 through 21. I am going to ask you to stand one more time if you're willing and able for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We do this not just for ceremony. We do this because we believe that this is God Himself speaking to us, His children. And so we want to show reverence for that. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 through 21. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said... Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, who are we that you should bring us thus far? Yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, for you have in store for your people what no ear has heard what no eye has seen, nor the mind of man could possibly imagine. Father, would you remind us of this truth this morning, that we might in return worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, just to offer... Kind of a big idea for this section, this week and next week, we might say that this chunk, verses 18 to the end of chapter 7, really has this as its main idea. Uh, We might say that hearing God with faith compels a confident confession and a powerful petition. Hearing God with faith compels a confident confession and a powerful petition. That's actually what we see David doing in response to the word of God that he's just received. We'll take up the first portion of this this week again, and then next week we'll look at David's powerful petition. But but first, what I want to do is kind of relay the foundation for us where we started many moons ago, right? Uh, God is more faithful than we think, therefore our confidence should be higher than it is. You see that now, hopefully, how that is so. Uh, God's promise to David is a demonstration of his ongoing faithfulness to his promise from the very beginning to redeem for himself a people of his own possession, to restore the blessing or curse, uh, remove the curse as far as it is found. 
We are reminded as we listen to God speaking His promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that, that, that God has always been, is always, and will always be faithful. And now as we turn to David, we see that a right response to God's faithfulness is confidence. More confidence than we often have. We've seen that God's promise prevails even when his son fails. We've seen how Israel was meant to be a new son in a new garden, and yet they followed the same exact course as their father Adam, betraying their faithful father. And so as we turn to this text now, with the failure of Israel in the background, we see God's grace, his mercy, and his faithfulness. It's amplified against that very dark background. If, if that's the foundation, then the material we have here in chapter 7 it was specifically God's promise of a better son to get it done. That better son, as we saw the last time we took up this text two weeks ago, implies the promise of a better covenant, founded on better promises. Connecting us all the way forward to the book of Hebrews, where we see that Jesus the Christ is the fulfillment of what was promised here in 2 Samuel 7. So this morning, really again, what we're going to see is a response to this promise. And as I walk through this text, I, I want us to ask ourselves if this is the appropriate response. Is this the appropriate response to the promise issued to David? And, and if it is, then how much more is that appropriate for those of us who have heard or experienced the accomplishment of this very promise? How much more should we gather regularly and offer up a confident confession of who we are and who our God is? To offer up powerful petitions asking God to work according to that which he has promised. Friends, we've got much to learn from this text. But before we begin, in case there are any here who are new to this, please understand that, that the scriptures do clearly communicate and, and testify that God has fulfilled a promise of a better son who would establish a better covenant enacted on better promises. God sent his own eternal son who was, is, and will always be God to be born of a woman, to become fully human in every way except for sin. He came in the flesh and fulfilled the law of God to offer up his life as a ransom for many, a payment to free us from the guilt or powerful power of sin. And this man's name is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament. He came and he established a new covenant relationship with God that secures for us every spiritual blessing and removes every covenant curse for all who trust in him alone. Now, salvation is offered to everyone. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. All who believe that God sent his son, all who confess with their mouths that Jesus was raised from the dead, they have forgiveness for all their sins. They have redemption, adoption, grace, mercy, love, and every other spiritual blessing through faith in the greater son of David. That's why we can look at these, this response to a, to a promise and have the kind of confidence we have. Because as you've heard from the testimonies this morning, 
This is the work that Christ himself has established. A new covenant head promising us all spiritual blessings. Now, let's get into the text, shall we? Let's see David's response as he initially received that promise that has now been accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I want us to notice this. Uh, David confesses a confident humility. David confesses a confident humility. I know that's an oxymoron almost, right? It seems that way, but it's not. David confesses a confident humility. We actually see that just in verse 18 alone. Put your eyes on that. Let's read that together. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? We really should be careful not to just fly right past this, this declaration as it leads off this entire prayer. It's a rhetorical question, right? Notice that the question serves to communicate not an absence of knowledge. It's actually a communication of knowledge itself. What I mean by that is the first kind of heading under this point is David isn't simply asking a question when he says, Who am I? O Lord, he's confessing or expressing a truth. David isn't simply asking a question here, but he's expressing a truth. There's an important distinction to be made here. It's like this. If, if I ask you, how, how do I get to the chicken house, right? You assume, first off, you assume that I know where the chicken house is by looking at me. That's insulting. But second, you assume I'm asking you a question that expresses my lack of knowledge, Right? I expect you to fill in that lack of knowledge with directions to the fried chicken, right? But if I look at my daughter and I say, Princess, how did you get to be so beautiful? I'm not expressing a lack of knowledge. I'm not asking her to explain to me, well, it's because of you, mostly mommy, and your genes, and the Lord made me this way, and so on. No, I'm simply expressing a truth, Right? So also when David says, who am I? He's not asking the Lord, I've kind of got amnesia. Who am I, Lord? I've forgotten who I am. Would you remind me? No. He's declaring a fundamental truth. David is expressing the truth that he has grasped by hearing with faith in the previous verses. The truth is that he is not worthy of the kindness that the Lord has just declared towards him. The truth that David has no way merited the promise that the Lord just declared. The the truth that he recognizes what God just promised him in the first 17 verses of 2 Samuel 7 was nothing more than pure, unadulterated grace. So this rhetorical question reflects a fundamental truth and one that's true of all of us. See, it's also worth pointing out, not only is David not simply asking a question but expressing a truth, but... It's, pointing out, it's worth pointing out that David isn't responding to the testimony of creation, but to a testimony of promise. That's a very important distinction. It may seem like it comes out of left field just saying that, but, but it's true. David isn't responding to the testimony of creation, but to a testimony of promise. Now, we know what the testimony of creation is, right? It, it, we know that it's sufficient to teach us that we're all dependent creatures, That we cannot survive, let alone thrive, without the presence and favor of our Creator. But we know that that testimony given in general revelation is not sufficient because human beings are born with sin in their hearts toward God. 
They are born suppressing the knowledge of their creator and they actually exert energy with their lives attempting to, instead of building a great name for their Lord, building a great name for themselves. But you see, when we hear the the promise of unconditional love, that, that God will build a house and build an unshakable kingdom, when the Lord accompanies that message with a gift of faith, then we respond like David does. Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? You see, David understood that he wasn't the king of Israel because he was stronger, wiser, or better looking than all the other men. David rightly understood that his survival, a man who has survived by the skin of his teeth on several occasions, his success and his station now as king of Israel was not due due to his own shield and sword. I guarantee you that that David, after hearing this promise, remembered being called out of the pasture. A young lad not even invited to the feast of his family as they gathered in the presence of the most prominent man in all of Israel. He wasn't even invited. Like it's one thing if you invite half the brothers and leave the other half, but to invite literally every other brother but you, that's insulting. He was out with the stinky sheep. Tending the pasture. It was only when Samuel asked Jesse directly, Are these all your sons? That's when he said, Well, there is another. Do you think that David recalled the servant coming to fetch him, showing up at the sneers of his brothers, looking down at this young lad who was then before them anointed king of Israel, and thinking, Well, of course Samuel would pick me. I'm the obvious choice. No. And what a picture this is. David, out in his work clothes, smelling like sheep, standing among his older brothers and being anointed king over God's people. I mean, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but I think that's one that left an indelible imprint on David's mind. So the rest of David's story simply confirmed what, what that picture communicated. David's success was not a reflection of David. It was a reflection of David's God. I mean, have we not seen that over and over again in 2 Samuel? Who am I? What is my house? It's the only reasonable response to a truth like that. Listen, church. We know that David prefigures here the true and better David. The one who was also born in this humble estate. Jesus, the truly independent one, lived a completely dependent life. Jesus, the truly exalted one, lived a life that perfectly demonstrated the phrase, Who am I? No one better demonstrated the virtue of humility, what it looks like, than Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of dying on a Roman cross as he bore all the sins of God's people, saying the whole way, Not my will, but your will be done. See, David has heard the promise of God with faith and his first response is to express humility. Not just any humility, but humility in what God has done in bringing David thus far. That it has nothing to do with David himself. But but I also want you to see one more thing about this humility. It's not the typical way we think of humility and some of the difficulties we, we find navigating humility. Listen to this. David is not responding in humility with fear of punishment here, but fear of love. David isn't responding with, with fear of punishment in his humility, but fear of love. What do I mean by that? Well, 
I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Not necessarily the opposite, but it's, it's just a different kind of humility than what we see in Isaiah 6. You remember that story? This is David. David's not saying, like Isaiah, Oh, woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips! So we might be tempted to think that's what he's doing here. But, but think about, what was the context of Isaiah's, Oh, woe is me! It was before the pre-incarnate judgment seat of Christ, before he was sent out to speak a word of judgment against God's people. This, this is not that. This is humility born from hearing the promise of faith. With faith. This is not the, the type of humility or shame that leads to repentance. This is the virtue of humility that is the byproduct of truly understanding who we are and who God is. We would do well to kind of know the difference between those two things because one simply produces a fear of punishment, right? That was Isaiah's state before the Lord, right? Before God graciously communicated forgiveness to him by, by what? Taking the coal and touching his lips. But this other produces the fear of love. See, this is David who's already heard the promise of forgiveness, He's already heard the declaration of acceptance and his response is one of humility. See, David, get this, David isn't on his face right now hoping just to survive this encounter, is he? And we even looked at the significance of what verse 18 tells us, that he actually sat in the presence of the Lord. That's, that's not what he's doing. David drew near because he heard with faith. He believed the promise and God's perfect steadfast love had cast out his fear. David is humbled at his exaltation. He's humbled at the knowledge of it. And, and friends, these look and sound very different. This is, again, not the shame that leads to repentance, which, by the way, is, is always a good starting point. But this is humility that comes with knowing the honor bestowed upon the children of God. There are two very different responses to that, each appropriate in its own context. But, but I'm making an argument here that, that worship actually begins with who am I? You know, your ability to answer that question rightly begins and ends with hearing the gospel of God with faith. It's a question each and every one of us have always asked ourselves, right? Who am I? Who is this person? But the right answer to that question begins with the gospel. Part of what we have to understand is we don't start with who am I the way David is expressing it here. You actually start Isaiah's way. You, you start in your sin. You start dead in your trespasses. You weren't asking who am I in light of the true knowledge of God. You had no true knowledge of God. That's the exact thing that you suppressed every single day. You thought you knew who you were. It's called pride. You knew nothing of what you truly are. You don't start with who am I. You start with the opposite, pride. The belief that we were the God of our own universe, created our own destiny, creating our own meaning. But if you're a Christian, God has mercifully convicted you of your prideful sin and caused you to declare, like Isaiah... Woe is me. 
See, there was a moment that you came to realize all I have believed to be true is not true. That you came to see God in His holiness and God did better than reach down, grab a coal, and touch your lips with it. He took the blood of Christ and washed you, making you clean. He clothed you in the righteousness of Christ and He brought you into His house, promising you every spiritual blessing. Jesus Christ in His infinite kindness preached peace to us. Friends, God in His sovereign goodness sent His Spirit to generate faith in our stony hearts. If we call ourselves Christians, it's because we've heard the message of reconciliation and believe with faith. Then, if we heard and believed, only then should we really ask, Okay, now, in light of the true knowledge of God, who am I? Who am I, Lord, that you would reach out and pluck me from the pit? That you place my feet upon the rock? Who am I that you would take my stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh? Who am I that you would call me son or daughter and bestow upon me an eternity worth of steadfast love that nothing in creation could separate me from? This is the beginning of worship, but it's very important that we we understand this. We can't stop there because David doesn't. David doesn't just express a confident humility. Look what he says next. David goes on to confess a confident hope. A confident hope is what David expresses here now. We find this in verse 19. Put your eyes on that text with me if you will. It says this. And yet, I love this. This was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you've also spoken of your servant's house... For a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord? Uh, see, look, David, he responds not simply by thanking God for his past salvation. He's not simply responding to something the Lord did back then. Most of us do that when we hear with faith, right? Most of us tend to look back at the moment the Lord saved us and, and we, we grab all of our gratitude from that point. It's a good starting place. It causes us to ask, who am I? But, but notice what David is about to say. It's not grounded in that. David's awe and love really flow forth as he quickly turns to his future salvation. Don't you see? He looks back at everything that the Lord has done and he says, Who am I that you would bring me thus far? And yet, that was a small thing in your eyes. David is in awe of the promise. Think about this. Think about what all of David has been through, right? We're talking Goliath, Saul, Nabal, Achish, the Philistines, Abner. The Lord has been for him and David has had success wherever he went. It's no small thing that the Lord has done to bring David and Israel thus far, not from the worldly perspective. We wouldn't call that a small thing. Would you call the story of David a small thing? But as we read through 1 Samuel, we we read the Goliath event, we, we don't think that's just a tiny story. No big deal and keep on moving. We talk about it all the time. Everybody knows about David and Goliath. This is a huge thing. People who barely even know the Bible talk about David and Goliath. And yet, what does David say? This was a small thing for you, Lord. The Lord rescued David repeatedly from physical death. He sustained him in enemy territory, accomplished his promise to make him king of Israel. Now this last in the long line of sons, a shepherd boy, is the king of the land with many sons and an incredible track record of success. And whatever he does, most of us 
Whatever that looks like today for us, if that was us, we would say, thank you, Lord. Lord, look what you've done in my life. It's absolutely incredible. We would think we're worshiping in light of our current circumstances, but David actually shows us what real worship looks like. Friends, real worship can't be satisfied with this. David is king of Israel. He's got everything from a human perspective that you would want. And he says, this ain't it. You promised me, Lord, something greater. David didn't draw near to the Lord to thank him for what he had done, though it was certainly appropriate to do so. David drew near to thank and seek him because of what Jesus had just promised. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. That's what David said. See, David's humility is compounded by the realization that what the Lord has done is nothing, nothing compared to what he will do. Saints, let me get right to the point. Our love and awe will be equaled with our understanding of this very truth. David reminds us that it is a small thing for God to bring us thus far. And let's be honest, if we were to share our stories... We'd have a lot of things that the Lord has brought us through, wouldn't we? And, and again, we wouldn't consider those small things. But here's what's nuts. They're small to the Lord. Certainly they're small compared to what he has promised to accomplish in us. Just stir your hearts to praise, shouldn't it? We ask, who are we that you've brought us thus far, O oh Lord? It's a big thing that the Lord plans to do for us. In fact, it's the very reason we gather. The certain hope that God has in store for us what no ear has heard, nor eye has seen, nor mind of man imagined. And here's the issue. I feel that many of us struggle with joy, with love, struggle with worship in spirit and in truth precisely at this point. We think, oh yeah, I remember the Lord saved me, man. I used to be dead in my trespasses and sin, and now I'm not. That's, that's great. But you know, life stinks, <laughs> I mean, it's just really, really hard right now. Friends, you're, you're looking at the wrong thing. Yes, who am I? I'm humbled. I'm in awe of the Lord bringing us thus far. But this isn't it. If this is it, Paul would say that you and I are to be pitied more than all. Don't you see? It is a certain hope that compels our worship. Our worship is fueled by hope. And we have to understand, saints, we're waiting. Our, our reasonable response to our God and Savior, it may begin with, who am I? But it's immediately followed with, this is a small thing. You've spoken of a salvation for a great while to come. Yes, who are we that you would open our eyes to know you through a glass dimly lit, but it won't? Always be so. There's a day quickly approaching when we will see Jesus face to face. And friends, hear me. If your heart doesn't hunger for that, you can't worship. It was a small thing in your sight to change our hearts, O oh God. To forgive us, to justify us in your sight. And the Lord has spoken of a greater thing. Am I just saying that? Am I just saying that? Or, or is it true? Has the Lord spoken of something greater? 
Let me ask you, the new heavens and new earth, does that sound greater than what's going on currently here? That sound greater than anything that's ever currently been going on here? Do you watch the news? Actually, I hope you don't. It's just, no. It sounds greater to me. Has he spoken to the removal of every cause of sin and lawbreakers? Has he spoken of the wiping away of every tear to get this, the healing of the nations, the knowledge of him filling the earth as waters cover the sea? He has. So do we gather and just say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done and then go about our merry way? Or do we gather and say, who are we? Thank you for what you've done. Now act according to your word and come, Lord Jesus. David has confessed his confident humility. But last one, and it starts with an H, of course. David goes on to confess his confident honor. I'm going to add the H there because it doesn't really work if you don't alliterate it with the sound. Um, So we're going to say honor um, instead of honor today. I'm sure there's English teachers in here that are cringing. All right, uh, let's go ahead and read verses 20 through 21 as David expresses his confident (coughs) honor. Uh, Let's see. Verses 20 says this. Now what more can we say, can David say to you, excuse me, for you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. I really believe that this actually ties right back into with, with what a right understanding of humility looks like. Hear this. I've come across so many Christians who confuse humility with self-loathing. Right? They think by absolutely hating themselves on a continual basis and expressing to everybody that they hate themselves, that they're actually being humble. This is not what, what David demonstrates to us. David's humility is... And hope actually lead to the confession that he is honored. In other words, David's who am I is not because he just lost a slingshot competition and now he's questioning his self-worth. Right? Who am I? I know I'm better than that. I believe, can't believe my brother beat me. That's, that's not David's who am I. His humility is a result of God revealing with greater, greater clarity who he is and what purposes for David and his people are. That, that does not provoke for David anyway in verses 20 through 21 to self-loathing, self-abasement, or self-contempt. I want us to understand where those things exist, it's due to an improper understanding of God's word. You know what produces self-contempt and self-loathing? Yes, initially it can come from understanding our sin in light of the holiness of God. But but I really believe that self-contempt and self-loathing with Christians, it comes from stopping right there and not finishing the gospel. Yes, initially it does, but we have to move past this. As, As one who knows he's now accepted, not due to any merit of his own, but only because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As one who now knows himself as a son or a daughter of God Most High. If that defines you, then please hear me. If you're constantly wrestling with self contempt and self loathing, it's not because you're humble, it's because you're failing to see the full gospel. If you are a son or daughter of God Most High, your God has called you out of the domain of darkness and has personally transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
where you now exist as co-heirs with his own son. It's what we call the gospel. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God the Father now looks upon you. By your faith placed in Christ, he now looks upon you as though you've lived a righteous life. As though all of your sins have been taken away. As though you have never once sinned, even though we all know that's not true. Friends, that is the gospel. Now, our, our, our self-loathing, our self-contempt is nothing more than a denial of the gospel. We put it this way. It contradicts what God has declared to be true about you. Let me tell you, I'm going to wrestle with self-loathing this afternoon. I get it. I I may not wrestle with it to the extent that you do, but, but wrestling with these things and accepting them, friends, they're two entirely different things. I get that we'll constantly, constantly, especially as we're faced with our own sin in light of the holiness of God, constantly wrestle with this. We're going to continue to condemn ourselves, even though God has said that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I get that we'll continue to judge ourselves by the honor of men, or according to the value of men, even though God says, I now know you and you know me. Let me ask you, let me ask you, when you hear the word of the only true and living God declare, come to me all you who are heavy who are burdened, I'm sorry, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you hear that promise, do you believe him? (laughs) When you hear the true and living God say, come by bread without money, come by wine and milk without price, do you believe him? When you hear God declare to sinners, to prostitutes, adulterers, tax collectors, and even Pharisees, I have always loved you. I have loved you since the foundation of the world. If you doubt my love for you, you need only to look to my son whom I did not spare but gave up for you. When you hear that with faith, when you know who God really is, what he's really done to bring you thus far and what he will do for us, then who am I can be followed by what more can I say? I'm simply honored to be loved and saved by the king. Look again at verses 20 through 21. When I I first read this, I really misunderstood what David was saying here. This may come as a surprise to you, but I tend to be fairly cynical. Um, I'm given towards self-contempt. I wrestle with those things. When When I read it, this is how I was tempted to read it. When David says... For you, Lord God, know your servant. I immediately thought about, yeah, God, you definitely know how wretched of a human being I am. That's what David's communicating, right? You know I'm not worthy of life, and though that might be true, listen, there's actually a fundamental problem with interpreting David's words like that. Because it's not what David means. This, This you know your servant, it's in parallel with you have made me know them. That is God's works. So so David has come to know and the Lord has made him to know God. What David's declaring here is his confident honor. What I mean by that, it's the honor of being known by God and knowing God. David is acknowledging that the Lord knows him. And that, by grace, he knows the Lord. The Lord Almighty has condescended to call David into relationship with him. 
The God knowing David in verse 20 reflects David's knowing of God in verse 21. So humility and hope help us to acknowledge that we have this unsurpassable honor of being known by and knowing the Lord. Think, saints. Think about what that means biblically. Do you remember the words of our Savior in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? What is eternal life? And this is eternal life. That they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. So if that's the case, knowing God is directly connected to every single spiritual blessing. If knowing God is one of the ways to express the pinnacle of all human flourishing, if we now know God and are known by God through Jesus Christ, we have on us bestowed the single greatest honor that any human being could ever possibly have. Do you, think, do you think honor is important? How many people spend their entire lives seeking the honor of others? I would argue each and every one of us in all sorts of ways. I, I think if we're honest, a lot of us actually interpret honor in a very worldly way. We think we'd be greatly honored if we just had a PhD in astrophysics. Or, or if we had the right answer for our kids every time they asked. We'd be honored as a great father. There are all sorts of ways we define out honor. Right? If I could always just shoot straight, if I, if I knew that I could defend my family with like Jason Bourne type moves, like if I could survive the apocalypse, I would be greatly honored among all men. All the while, we despise the honor that the Father has bestowed upon us of knowing Him and being known by Him. That's the greatest honor that there is. That's what David has in mind in verses 20 through 21. In fact, David actually wrote a song about it. Would you like to hear that? I'm going to read it anyway, if you don't. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Again, I get that we can read this right here and it terrifies us as we think about it in terms of what it means for God to know the ugly parts of us, right? But David's not writing this out of fear of punishment here, but again, out of fear of love. He goes on in verse 4, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Friends, if there's one thing I would like on my tombstone, it was this. The Lord knew Cody. 
and Cody knew the Lord. Because there's nothing more honorable than that. David is known and David knows. That is the relationship that you enjoy as a child of God. But let me ask you, do you enjoy that? Worship begins with humility. It's fueled by hope, but it also must acknowledge the honor that has been bestowed upon us. It must be actually a celebration of that honor. It must be a growing cultivation of the satisfaction of being both known by God and knowing God our Father. Saints, this is what the Lord has done for us. If David's response is a confident confession of these truths, how much more should the people of God in Christ Jesus cry out, Who are we that you have brought us thus far? Of course, this is no small thing, and this is a small thing in your eyes. You have stored up for us what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind of man imagined. What honor has been bestowed upon us as a child of the King. Friends, what more can we say? Our response to the promise of God fulfilled in Christ is a confident confession about who we are. A humble, hopeful, and honored people. Children of the Most High God. To Him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand as we close together in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, Lord, you know that we need to constantly be reminded of who we are in light of what your son has done father we thank you that indeed you have brought us thus far not through any work or merit of our own not because of anything in us but simply because of your free love placed upon us before the foundation of the world father we know that you have even greater things in store for us the fullness of our salvation, the consummation of that which Christ has accomplished. Father, we thank you that we are able to count ourselves among those who are known by you and who know you. Would you help us to be faithful in proclaiming the excellencies of Christ until the day he appears. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.